0: Hey everybody, welcome back to New Books in History. This is Pamela Fuentes, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Fonke Aladejevi about her new book, Schooling the System, A History of Black Women Teachers. Fonke, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Why don't we start this conversation by, by you telling us about yourself?
1: Okay, so I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Toronto. And there I teach a lot of courses and um, academic uh, ideas around Black Canadian history. I also talk a lot about uh, the history of gender and race in Canada. So here we look through themes around immigration, around access, around policy and education. So a lot of my work thinks through the history of education and uh, Canadian institutions and the ways that Canadian institutions have included or excluded um, persons of African descent, particularly women, from its structures. So that's my uh, academic background, but I also am deeply, deeply invested in uh, community work and the ways in which uh, community, particularly in my minority spaces, uh, can be developed and relationships can be developed around the lines of thinking through Black Canadian identity and, and access.
0: Thank you, very interesting. Can you tell us how you came to write this book? What is the history behind Schooling the System?
1: Ah, okay, so the history behind the history of this book. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So Schooling the System came about really uh, as a response to things that I noticed in the historical discipline. I noticed very early on in my academic career, I was originally training to become a teacher and then uh, was accepted into the master's program in the Department of History, and I went on uh, from there. But as I was looking for materials for what I would like to teach my students on in Black Canadian history, I noticed that there wasn't much about Black Canadians. And then I started noticing there really wasn't anything about Black women and Black professional women. So in Canada, a lot of the history books talked about uh, children and their experiences in school systems, but no one talked about what it meant to be a Black educator in this moment, teaching uh, young people. So I started doing that research as a way of really finding a little bit more about myself and my place within the Canadian education system, and then trying to understand this history of educators who came long before before me and what impact they had on uh, Canadian school systems and Black Canadian life more broadly. So that's how the book really started. And from there, it just grew into, a project of trying to learn more about women's lives, black women's lives and their experiences.
0: And talking about experiences, central for your analysis are the interviews to 26 black female educators who taught in Ontario in a period of time that goes from the 1940s to the 1960s. Can you tell us more about them, about their profiles and how their voices are incorporated into your book? Absolutely. So
1: the voices of Black women who taught in between the 1940s to around the 1980s was really um, through their oral histories. So I did and conducted a series of interviews with uh, 26 Black women teachers and their profiles changed uh, in a variety of ways. So the first cohort of women that I spoke to were the early educators. These were the women who were teaching early in the 1940s and 1950s. They were coming in at the time when uh, teacher training was just becoming available for Black women. And so they were really pushing against these um, social barriers, racial barriers. It's also the time when there were segregated school systems that existed and so these black women were actually teaching in predominantly black schools in predominantly black neighborhoods because they were unable to access the public school systems these women also tended to be younger in age and they tended to be uh born in canada so uh their parents were here and they were uh there was a lot of intergenerational presence happening with this group the second cohort of women that i spoke to were women who came into Canada as largely as immigrants from the Caribbean in the late 1960s and early 1970s and then many of them came already trained as teachers and educators. They had qualifications in their birth homes and so they came with an awareness and an understanding of their professional identities and then they came and started teaching in schools. So that was the relative trend but overall most of these women were coming from working in middle class backgrounds. Uh, Their parents valued education and uh, thought teaching was a way for social and economic mobility.
0: And in the first chapter, you explore the reasons why black women enter enter the teaching profession in the years that go to the 1940s to 1950s. You mentioned that the reasons behind their decisions are related to choice, like they wanted to, but also the quality of choices available to black women in the education system what were the the motivations you find and what what was the context they faced during those years? Absolutely.
1: In this early period, um, the book really talks about the limitations of choice, that in a lot of ways Black women entered teaching professions because it was one of the only things that was considered to be respectable work. It was the only things that was available outside of domestic work. In this period, almost 80 percent of black women were teach uh, were domestic laborers so they were either domestic laborers working as laundresses or working in a largely service and service style industries and so teaching allowed them to move away from this kind of profession and into a more uh, skilled training or skilled trades position and so in a lot of ways uh the the way in which they entered teaching was because of these limitations these broader um limitations in the labor market, racial discrimination in the labor market, sexual discrimination in the labor market, forced women into these positions. Uh, In this early period too, women were actually very practical, right? They saw themselves as being able to get a lot more money, to have a a consistent and stable income by entering the teaching profession. And then they entered the teaching profession because there was a teacher shortage uh, in this period. And so Canada at the time uh, created Entrance programs into the teaching profession that allowed them to be able to gain their training and accreditation over the summer. So these were all ways in which black women thought This might be the best way to enter the teaching profession. They didn't have to quit their current jobs to be able to go get training. They didn't have to uh, sometimes complete grade 13 in order to get their training. And so they really looked at it as a practical way of thinking through economic stability and social mobility. And so that's really what motivated them and then a few of them believed that it was their calling right they believed that it was something that they were always meant to do and that the teaching profession allowed them to merge their desires for community and social uplift with you know economic stability so uh, multiple reasons for why they entered but perhaps one of the strongest one is that black women were very much funneled into particular kinds of industries in the labor in the post-war period. And so teaching was one of the best options in the line of jobs and positions that were really discriminatory and difficult for Black women.
0: And there's another period you study, the, the one that goes from 1965 to the 1980s. And you document the increment of immigrant student populations, mainly from the Caribbean, as an important factor to recruit Black women teachers into positions within school boards. I wonder what are the continuities and changes you find in the experience of this cohort in comparison to the early uh, period
1: you were just explaining? Yeah, absolutely. So I think some of the continuities there were that um, in the early period and in the latter period of my study, um, many women viewed teaching as a way forward as a respectable position as a way to access leadership as a way to access uh social mobility in their communities um and as something that was considered to be respectable right so this merging into the professional workplace was something that was consistent throughout both periods and then perhaps the more disturbing element of what was um consistent across these periods was that no matter when and where women went black women went they experienced racial and gender based discrimination in the workplace Uh, and so even in this early period and in the latter period with all of the training and all of their skills even with uh the federation of women teachers association of ontario and union activity that was helping to support uh gender equity in the workplace Black women often fell through the cracks and often experienced some of the most overt kinds of racial and sexual discrimination. And so that was a consistent thread throughout. Um, One that was distinctive in uh, in the second period of my study is that the Black women who were coming in largely from the Caribbean were also responding to the increase of Racial and ethnic immigrants in Ontario. So the population of young people during this period was more racially diverse than it had ever been before. And so school boards were really trying to respond to these shifts and these changes and desired and leaned on black women to help them understand uh, how to teach children from different backgrounds. And so the book argues that in a lot of ways, these women were some of the earliest architects of anti-racist education, right? That, that even though they didn't write the policies, they were indeed creating inclusive classrooms in ways that Ontario school boards hadn't thought about before.
0: And in that chapter, as, as uh, we are uh, talking about, immigration played, played an important role. And you made a very interesting analysis of uh, of language and how creolized versions of French and English seem not to assimilate to ideas of what it meant to be Canadian. I'm using air quotes Mm -hmm. in here. (laughs) Or uh, which immigrant groups could easily assimilate to a predetermined idea of nation and citizenship. Can you tell us more about that, about this predetermined idea about what Canadian is and how these groups were not seen as easily assimilating
1: even when they were
0: speaking french and english
1: absolutely so in this early period the ways in which canada and ontario as a province viewed racial inclusion or inclusion more broadly was through language so language was connected to these earlier traditions of french and british identity and ideals and so those people were considered to be quintessentially Canadian people who could communicate in one of the two uh, languages, but also the assumption here was that people who could communicate in these languages were predominantly white. What ends up happening is as an increasing number of immigrant populations from the French Caribbean, from uh, the Caribbean where the British Caribbean where they're speaking both English and French, the linguistic argument doesn't work well, because what it means is that these racialized populations do not fully embody Canadian identity and Canadian-ness. And so even though um, these immigration policies are structured in particular ways, they were originally meant to welcome uh, European and white populations, and they weren't meant to welcome racialized people. And so as immigration increases and revs up amongst Black Caribbeans and amongst Africans, the state has to respond to these changes. And what they end up doing is create limited forms of inclusion Uh, and what ends up happening is that racialized populations don't feel like they quite belong. There is this assumption that they are not Canadian enough. There is an assumption that as a result of these things, they must be in what ends up happening, they create programs called English as a second dialect to move rather than English as a second language, right? and English as a second dialect programs start to think through creolized languages that Black Caribbean populations were coming in. The difference in these programs was that uh, school systems often viewed the language deficit as something that was pathological and therefore meant that the Black children who were coming into these programs were intellectually uh, deficient. So. In other programs who took ESL, and this was largely with Greek, Italian, largely European, uh, Portuguese populations, the assumption was that they could become white. And so, even in these ESL uh, programs, the assumption was that they would be able to be and match um, and become Canadian, learn uh, Canadian values. However, English as a second language, English as a second dialect uh, assumed that these populations could not match and could not be Canadian. So there were really multiple and complex ways that Canadian school systems grappled with its racially diverse populations. But one thing that they definitely did was to continue to create programs that did not integrate in a, in a fully consistent or inclusive way, Black students and Black educators.
0: And just like, I don't want to ask something that is really obvious in here. I just want to... Uh... I just want to confirm this, this idea that you are explaining for, for myself. Um, so these English as a Second language classes were directed towards a Caribbean and African students' immigration population.
1: Absolutely. They were largely directed towards Black Caribbean students, to be honest. Those were the highest numbers of uh, Black populations that were coming into schools during this period. The only distinction here was that it happened also at the request of some Black educators. So the belief here was that because there was no programming available to speak to Black students, what many educators actually did was create or help support uh, English as a Second Dialect programs to merge in some of the transition programs to allow for some culturally relevant and culturally responsive teaching in a moment when many of the school boards didn't. So really complex um, relationship that educators had with this program, but it was predominantly geared absolutely to Black Caribbean students who who spoke what the state perceived to be Creolized uh, English.
0: And in the third uh, chapter of the book, you explore the experience of Black women teachers in the workplace, which is something that you were already bringing to the conversation. Uh, some minutes before. In the first half of this chapter, you documented and analyzed microaggressions and other forms of discrimination. I will paraphrase some lines that strongly caught my attention, and I would like you to um, tie that with the broader aspects you you explored there. Uh, You mentioned that while Ontario schools were believed to be places of safety, learning and egalitarianism, they could also be dangerous places. How is that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for Black women teachers, this place or this understanding that school spaces were often safe, school spaces were places where you could develop professional relationships with other educators, schools places were places where you learned to teach, Uh, where you had control over your classrooms. That was not always the case for black women. Um, Some of the black women that I spoke to uh, documented and talked about experiencing violent threats. So other uh, particularly white male colleagues would issue violent threats, dangerous threats against them. They were places where they experienced some of the most overt kinds of racial discrimination and separation. Some women, for example, one woman in my Study was asked to sit in the basement of the school rather than to sit in the staff room for lunch. Uh, there were also places where they experienced severe social isolation in the school systems. Uh, one of the educators that I talked to was a principal in her school and she would go in, into the staff room to eat lunch with her colleagues. And anytime she would sit at a table with her colleagues, they would all get up and leave. And so these kinds of uh, isolating moments was very much part of the school system. So many black women educators did not find it to be entirely a place by which they could just teach. That in fact, for them, these broader conversations around racial discrimination, around sexism, uh, were very much part of their workplace experiences. And so it meant that these school spaces were inherently violent and dangerous places. And then if we add on the experiences of Black women's interactions with um, other Black students, trying to protect other Black students, uh, trying to create spaces of inclusion for other Black students, those moments of violence and danger were further compounded.
0: And uh, a follow-up to this, what were the responses or the strategies uh, Black women educators had against these uh, acts of discrimination?
1: Black women responded in a variety of ways. Some of them turned insular and went into their classrooms and communities just to teach and do the work and do the work well. Others joined other Black educators and started to create programming uh, organizations and working groups that would facilitate and create Black studies and Black history courses within their individual schools. And then some Black women removed themselves entirely from the institution and joined other culturally-based programs. For example, a program called the Black Education Project stood as a direct response to the erasures that were happening into school systems, and Black women would joined the Black Education Program, which was an after school tutoring program for children and adults. And they would help to teach young children about their experiences, but they also helped to teach parents about how to communicate with school administration, with principals, how to advocate for their uh, children. And so Black women took uh, a lot of these moments to to think through how to better service their communities and then a, a significant marker of what Black women did that I highlight in the book is that they developed what I call resistive pedagogies. So in the face of historical erasure, in the face of a curriculum that did not talk about Black people, uh, Black women teachers responded and created their own kinds of curriculum in individual classrooms. They ensured that books on Black history and Black life were at their schools. And they also created multicultural nights and programs Uh, to allow students of all cultural backgrounds to feel included. So these were really mechanisms of resistive pedagogies that stood outside of the mainstream curriculum, but very much was a response to the experiences that Black women were facing in the schools.
0: In in that chapter, you described several examples, but something that caught my attention is how uh, white professors could talk about Black students so freely, kind of ignoring completely the presence of Black educators. Can you explain us about those dynamics?
1: Yeah. So a significant part of Black women's experiences is that they were all, they were both hyper visible by their very race and gender in school systems. So everyone knew that they were minority educators in the school systems. They often leaned on them for conversations around racial diversity. But then in moments like these subtle ways in in staff rooms where uh, white educators and administrators would speak racial stereotypes or racial epitaphs about black students, black women were completely invisible from that conversation and they became hyper invisible in that they, it was a clear recognition that they didn't, their power within these institutions only went so far. And so even though their presence was very much physically there, in a lot of ways, they were unable to speak and to challenge some of these race-based discriminatory practices that many teachers, white teachers and educators brought into school systems uh, and often perpetuated against young black students. And so there were limitations to to the kinds of resistance and the power that Black women had inside schools.
0: Let's move now to the 1960s and 1970s and all of these uh, demonstrations and protests uh, against racial injustice in the United States. Can can you give us some context about what was happening in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s? And then we move to how that tied into Canada.
1: Absolutely. So there's this growing resistance that's happening in the United States, particularly around Black liberation in the late 1960s and early 1970s that deeply impacted uh, persons of African descent in Canada, right? Uh, They were looking at the ways in which civil rights activism, the ways in which Black liberation movements were talking about a unified Black consciousness, a Black consciousness that thought about Black people as a global entity, not one that was just rooted in the the geographic space of the United States, but one that involved a global uh, sense of collectivity, and Pan-Africanism. So Pan-Africanism was so fundamentally important to the ways in which Black liberation was happening. So the idea here is that Black people across geographic spaces, whether it be um, in Guyana, whether it be in South Africa, whether it be in London, UK, or whether it be in Canada, that Black people were connected across the diaspora And they need to fight against these institutions that sought to disenfranchise them or not provide equal rights in these various ways. And then at the same time this is happening, there's also a growing students movement um, that's happening across post-secondary institutions. And so students are also fighting for access to administrative uh, roles to be able to have a say in the kinds of education that they're having. Uh, engaging with, and to be able to speak directly to administration about their concerns. So that's happening. And then finally, women's liberation is happening. We're talking about a growing uh, women's rights movement, and women are advocating for access to various kinds of resources to, in in the teaching field, they're asking for equal pay for equal work. Uh, And so the list goes on. So it's all happening at the same time. So this growing sense of a counterculture, a, a push against dominant ideas of the state, a push against this um, ideal, idealism of liberalism and demanding that, that they be heard, right, that general populations be heard, uh, is, a, is a growing momentum that just continues to uh, influence the Canadian space and of course uh, North America more broadly.
0: How did these events challenge white definitions of what blackness was supposed to be in Canada? And I would like to tie that to what you were explaining about uh, a global sense, uh, contrary to, all oh, that happens in the other side of the border. I cannot believe what is happening in the United States without looking what is happening in Canada.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Canadians were, white Canadians I should say, were confronted with the reality that Canada was not a place of racial inclusion and belonging for black people. Very clearly before this period, Uh, Canadians often looked to the, the United States as the place where racial injustice happened and that Canada was a place that positioned itself as being a multicultural place, a place where racialized populations were happy, right? And so as this momentum, as this collective movement towards Black liberation is happening and Black Canadians adopt this language as well, Canadians are completely jarred, white Canadians are completely caught off guard about their own systemic injustice and their own participation in racism and discrimination. And that's what ends up happening, is that Black Canadians start to point to these forms of systemic racism. They start to talk about uh, discrimination in housing. They start to talk about discrimination in policing and education and start to actually create an Ontario Human Rights Commission that starts to look at the ways that these institutional forms are very much Canadian. And so it really starts to uh, open up the dialogue, at least in the mainstream, about the ways that Canada also participated in its own style and form of racial discrimination and injustice.
0: In your book, you explain different philosophies around Black activism. I would like to talk about the concept, concept itself. In one of the quotes you used for this chapter, one of the teachers you interviewed mentioned that nowadays activist is a positive term. But back then, it was not like that. Um, can you uh, expand on this idea? Yeah, absolutely. So uh,
1: some of the women that I, that I was speaking to were also very much community activists, social justice activists. And um, that reference was in, in a term to how mainstream activism has become in our contemporary sense, that a lot of people describe themselves as social justice warriors and activists. And that is, in fact, uh, heralded, it's supported We have um, places by which we encourage people to express themselves in in an important way and to to navigate for their rights in the public space. But in the 1960s and 1970s, to be a Black activist in Canada meant that you were disrupting um, the general consensus. It meant that you were not grateful, particularly if you were an immigrant, you were not a grateful immigrant for the services and uh, the space by which you were provided. And ultimately that was a negative thing. It was, um, and even within some black communities within conservative black communities to be an activist meant that you were ruffling the feathers and that you were disrupting the peace. Many black Canadian activists thought that the right thing to do was to act, ask for legislative changes, was to petition, uh, was to move through the proper chains of command. And so to be an activist, meant that you weren't doing those things in a respectable manner. uh, And those uh, those things were not considered to be prestigious um, ways of advocating for for your rights. And so to to be an activist then was dangerous and and in many ways to be an activist now, there involves a level of danger, uh, but then it was quite literally involved a level of surveillance, involved a level of um, policing that many community uh, members had to deal with.
0: Can you expand a little bit more on that on surveillance and policing like according to what your sources and testimon- testimonies told you about what happened in the education realm at that time? Absolutely. Many of the educators I talked to would
1: describe, for example, when they would go and volunteer at organizations like the Black Education Project that they thought that their phone lines were being tapped by the federal government or the provincial government. They also documented uh, moments when community white community members would eavesdrop on their spaces when they were teaching black children and report that they were teaching black radical tenants and teaching in, and inciting violence uh, and so that was a lot of the the discourses this uh, perceived uh, a fear and anxiety around black radical action and the belief that um the radical activism that was happening in the United States, particularly around the Black Panther Party, was also going to take a foothold in Canada. And so the, the, and the kind space that Canada was would no longer be. And then in some instances, particularly in areas like Nova Scotia, um, bl- Black radical activists in Nova Scotia were actually followed by police officers whenever they would have rallies or meetings. Uh, and so the policing continued to get on. And in fact, one of the largest uh, student demonstrations happened in Montreal as a result of a sit-in that happened in the computer center of the school that caused over a million dollars in damages at the university. But at the root of that was that um, people and the police and the university administration were surveilling these young student activists uh, and were very fearful that they were inviting Black Panther Party uh, members to come and speak to young students. So this notion of this fear of Black radicalism had very real consequences in that um, many students were surveilled and followed. And and then there was a lot of eavesdropping and and all of these kinds of things that became part of the way that um, activists had to, to contend with these challenges.
0: In this chapter, you also talk about the different forms that Black activism took in those years. Can you tell us how education programs became a place to make activism? And if that was a place in which different uh, philosophies came together?
1: Yeah, such a good question. I say in a lot of ways, um, the activism in Canada was incredibly diverse. Uh, Even though we don't talk about it that way, it was incredibly diverse. Not everyone was unified in the ways in which they thought activism should happen. Uh, We had broader national organizations who very much believed that one of the ways in which activism should happen was to take on a more collaborative approach with the provincial and federal government, was to create larger lobbying bodies to be able to advocate and also to create a larger national Black organization that could therefore represent um, the concerns of Black populations. And then we had a more younger, a more mobile, and in some ways a more radical um, organizing that was happening amongst Black populations where there was a concerned effort to think through why it it was taking so long, why racial equality was taking so long. Uh, And so these groups and organizers were really thinking through a push towards demanding rights and access, and also to providing evidence of the ways that discrimination was happening in real time. I mean, these are organizers that would call um, houses uh, and ask if the place was for rent, they would go. and if that person was discriminating on the basis of race, they would document that this, you know, this person is um, experiencing or participating in racial discrimination of housing. Here's what we need to do to create change. And so all of this momentum was happening at the same time. And and the book argues that in fact, it's a continuum of Black black activism, that there was no one way to to advocate for rights, but that in many ways, those um, activisms uh, had ebbs and flows. And there were moments when people leaned more towards national coalitions and organizations. And there were moments when people leaned more towards direct resistive practices. And so those things kind of went back and forth. Education stood at the center of that no matter what radical tenant uh, people were thinking or no matter what style of activism think people were thinking, everyone agreed that education was fundamentally important for social and economic mobility in the Black communities. And so whenever education programs came up or whenever uh, education spaces were created, they were often supported by all members, regardless of their very philosophical styles. They very much believed that education would allow and facilitate social mobility and racial justice and so often at times it was the place where people would come it was a meeting ground where uh, educators uh, where social activists where union organizers were all coming to meet to discuss what could be done about the education of their communities and so it was a really exciting place for many black educators who found themselves in these programs
0: in this context I think it is um, part of the conversation, what happened with feminism? What, why black women teachers decided to go for a framework of human rights to approach their concerns? Uh, come on, what happened with feminism?
1: <laughs> feminism was hard. Uh, so let's see, like feminism for black women was hard, I should say. You know, some of the women that I talked to, we're really excited about the potential of thinking through feminist active, activism and the growing women's rights movements in Canada. And in some ways came with some optimism about joining the momentum of gender um, equity. And they were noticing it in Black organizations, right? They were noticing that some Black organizations were also not thinking about gender and gender-based frameworks in the ways that they should. But very quickly, uh, the women that I talked to found that feminism had created a narrative of gender equality that was largely white, that was largely middle class, and of course, heterosexual and able-bodied. And so very quickly, Black women felt disengaged from mainstream, the mainstream Canadian women's movement because it almost completely did not talk about or address elements of race, but it also didn't address some of the other concerns that Black women educators felt was necessary and important to their communities. So things around immigration, Um, elements around motherhood and access to um, their men's jobs, right? So in a lot of ways, Black women were very much acutely aware that Black women also held precarious positions in society because of their race. And so their advocacy work around uh, gender justice was thinking through that as well and was not completely void of 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 men in that conversation or or motherhood more broadly. And so these things were, of course, very much part of their advocacy work. And unfortunately, Canadian women's rights movements did not address any of these things at all. And perhaps more obvious in that is that even in the moments when uh, these organizations were moving towards gender equity in, the, in classroom spaces, for example, or in workplaces, uh, they very often did not consider the intersexual experiences that Black women had around the lens of race and gender and class. And so often, at times, the needs of Black women teachers fell through the cracks. So many Black women felt completely disengaged from mainstream feminist organizations. They, in fact, leaned and created their own organizations like the Congress of Black Women of Canada to address Uh, the intersections of race and gender for black women and uh, in some instances they called out uh, mainstream feminist organizations for their silence around black women's issues and this became a really interesting way and of thinking about feminism so many black women teachers were really ambivalent about feminism many of them felt that they wasted their time and their energy in trying to think through feminist ideals when in actuality these organizations did very little to create inclusive spaces for them until about the late 1980s when when a lot of these organizations were taking a more anti racist approach to to thinking about race and that's around the same time we're starting to hear the language of women of color um, immigrant women and this language becomes more part of the mainstream but in this early period when teachers were really thinking through where they wanted to spend their energy uh, very clearly um Feminism in its mainstream form often spoke to white, white women, white middle class women's ideals and and very little about anyone else.
0: Unfortunately, I don't think it was only feminism, according to what I read in your book. Something similar happened with unions, for instance. What was the relationship of black women teacher with uh, unions? Absolutely. So Black women teachers and unions, and I would say this is why it's connected
1: to ideals of feminism in the mainstream sense, is that a lot of times the women teachers unions uh, gained mobility and access as a result of growing feminist ideals and the growing consciousness around women's access. So even though women's unions were around in the in t- women's teachers' unions were around for quite some time, they really gain momentum and mobility as a result of these growing feminist movements. Women are going to uh, post secondary school at a greater rate, they are taking upper administrative and leadership roles. And so they join and are participating and build on the momentum in teachers' unions and they advocate for gender equality, largely around pay, but also around women taking in positions of power. Um, at at their schools. So all of this starts to happen at the same time. And Black women were beneficiaries of these policies that were created by teachers' unions, right? If you have a teachers' union that is advocating for women's advancement in the upper administration, you have a union that is asking for equal pay, naturally those effects trickle down onto Black women who were part of these unions automatically. However, Black women did not always feel that the teachers' union responded and adequately addressed their needs as educators. Some women I spoke to reported uh, experiencing workplace harassment and feeling unsupported by the teachers union that was supposed to advocate for them. Some people felt completely disengaged and that they couldn't actually participate in the union because it never addressed issues of race along its membership. And so what ends up happening is that in many ways that in which in many ways that the mainstream women's movement erased black women from the conversation. The teachers union also uh, silenced black women amongst its membership and very rarely uh, in the ways that it should have spoke to black women. Again, it's not until the late 1980s that the Federation of Women Teachers Association of Ontario specifically starts to adopt an anti-racist policy and starts to speak towards um, black teachers. And that's when black women start to increase their participation in the union.
0: As part of this analysis, you used some concepts that are very, very useful to understand what you are explaining. And I would like to take this opportunity uh, to ask you to explain them. Let's start with tokenism. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Uh, tokenism
1: was something that was very real. Amongst women's experiences, particularly in relationship to their unions, but not exclusive to that. That also was happening in their relationship to their school and in the relationship to school administrators. Black women often found sometimes that they struggled back and forth between these notions of tokenism. So uh, people would comment, white educators or administrators would comment about how they were equity hires, right? That they were uh, only hired on the basis of their race and gender and not their expertise and skills and qualification. And so this notion of tokenism was that black women were meant to represent diversity as a physical embodiment of diversity, not as critical thinkers, not as engagers, not as people who are qualified and extremely skilled um, in their trades. And so this became this element of tokenism is that they were welcomed into these spaces uh, in the most superficial sense. And then when it came time for them to advocate for policy change, when it came time for them to advocate for structural change, these these things were pushed against and resisted upon. And so that element of tokenism was constantly something that, that Black women struggled with.
0: The second out of three concepts I would like to, to chat with you, it is the idea of the outsider within. What was it?
1: Yeah, for for Black women, um, the concept of outsider within really talks about, and it's developed from Patricia Hill Collins, particularly an American African American feminist. But in the Canadian context, this idea of being an outsider within described the ways in which um, Black women were considered to be both included into. Canadian educational institutions by their very nature of employment. And so in a lot of ways, they were considered to be within these institutions, they were considered to be the embodiment or at least were meant to articulate and teach a Eurocentric curriculum that often forgot about persons of African descent, but they were also outsiders by their very race, gender and class in that We're talking about institutions that did not fully include them in their curriculum mandates that did not fully include them into structures of power and access and did not fully allow them to make these kinds of systemic changes necessary for true racial inclusion in education spaces. And so as a result of that black women were always viewed as other uh, were always viewed as never fully belonging to educational institutions and this made them outsiders within.
0: The third and last uh, idea, it is uh, Srivata's Let's Talk approach. What is this and how it relates to the interactions you studied? Absolutely. So Srivata describes
1: a really interesting concept called the Let's Talk approach that developed uh, largely around uh, women's organizations in Canada. And in this piece, the Let's Talk approach was that uh, black women or racial minority women were welcomed into broader women 's organizations uh, in the late 1970s and early 1980s. They were welcomed to talk about conversations about racial injustice, to talk about uh, the bad and so the bad things that happened and the social ills that happened to minority women, but they were not allowed to create. Uh, systemic change. So the left chalk approach was a thing that white women's organizations would do is that they wanted to discuss and talk about racial injustice, but they didn't want to create mechanisms and institutions or create space by which to create broad sweeping systemic and institutional change. And so that is essentially what ends up happening in relationship to a lot of Black women is that they enter these spaces um, talking about the, the racial injustice that they've experienced and the you know the violence that they've experienced, but that is it. They don't go beyond that to help uh, or are not valued uh, enough to be able to support and create um, systemic change. And in many ways, it's the period by which um, Uh, racial inclusion shifts into gender inclusion. So the idea here is that gender inclusion is something that organizations can handle and can manage. And the process of racial inclusion is something that's always coming later and never actually arriving. And if if anything that we noticed from our contemporary conversations is that that continues to be true, is that in many ways, we are thinking about elements of gender equity in ways that have not fully talked or considered true systemic change on, a, on the basis of race.
0: I would like to end the conversation about the content of your book, talking about a constant presence that is there, but uh, it is an important part, even though it wasn't the focus of your analysis. And it is the relationship of uh, Black women teachers with their students do you have some something there or, or probably something that didn't make it to the book that can talk about that?
1: Yeah, so one thing that I've, that I always struggled with in the book is how much to talk about Black women's relationship with their students, uh, in some instances, and and I would say black women's relationship with students of all racial backgrounds. So uh, when I released or when I was starting to talk about this book, someone sent me a message, an email, and said, "I'm you know I'm a white student, and I had a black educator early on in in my academic career, and this teacher impacted me in so many different ways," um, and listed all of these things, and these are things that never made it to the book, right? And so in a lot of ways the book kind of stops at the nexus of thinking through the the significant impact that Black women teachers had on all students. Uh, There are allusions to it in the book about the ways that they created spaces of belonging and access and inclusion for young people. There are moments when we talk about the programming and the complexity of those relationships. Black women also described their fractured relationships with other Black students as they tried so much to create, you know, rigorous academic standards for their Black students. Sometimes this meant that their relationships weren't always um, collegial or positive. Some Black women also talked about feeling betrayed by some of their students when those students didn't do well in their courses. And so in a lot of ways, Black women just... these complex emotions and connected relationships with their students even as they try to advocate and a thing that I try very much to integrate in the book is to talk about Black women's selfhood that in a lot of cases when we talk about the experiences of Black women and Black women teachers in this instance very rarely are they allowed to be individuals individuals who have complex feelings of both positive and negative experiences and so the work in describing Or at least describing alluding to the relationships with students is to give space for black women as individuals that not all of them were desiring collective relationships, they were really just trying to work and survive with the tools that they had and so I think maybe if I was to do this project again, I might add a chapter on their experiences with students themselves but yeah.
0: Well, maybe that's a project for somebody that is listening to this podcast or for somebody that reads your your book because you actually capture all of those complexities there. Um, I think we could talk more and more about your book, but it is time to let you go. But I don't want to say goodbye without asking you about any other projects you might have or any... Anything that you would like the audience to put their eyes and ears on? Okay, yeah. Um,
1: My upcoming project is on a project called Black Internationalism, Global Crossings. And in this project, I'm going to be looking at Black international students who came to Canada in the 1960s and 1970s. And I want to talk about how they informed um, this growing sense of Pan-Africanism, but also radical racial justice in Canadian schools. And so that's going to be the next project. I'm excited about that. A lot of the women that I talked to in the project often discussed you know, going to visit their friend in the Caribbean or going to visit their friend in the UK. And so there was this global connectivity of uh, young students who were coming for mobility, for economic training in Canada, who found themselves in interesting circumstances as they start to join the movement for racial justice in Canada. So I'm hoping to talk a little bit about that in the next project. And for any new projects I have, I encourage people to please check out my website at funkealadejabi.com or.ca. Uh, both web pages work. Uh, and it's still, usually I keep pretty updated information about latest projects that I'm working on or um, important articles or web series and talks that I've done. So please go check out the website if uh, you wanna get some more updated information.
0: The invitation is there and I want to wish you the best of luck with that very interesting project. I want to thank you also for being on the show today. Thank you so
1: much for having me and thank you for these wonderful questions. I just really enjoyed the session.
0: So please be sure to check out Schooling the System, a History of Black Women Teachers. And thanks everybody for listening to New Books Network in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time.